0: Now, Mark was writing to who? Do you remember the Romans? Uh, he was writing uh, in Rome uh, to the Romans before the Great Persecution happened, somewhere in the fifties, uh, scholars say, and he was writing to them. And uh, Mark one one basically gives the reason why he's writing this, and it's John Mark, as we saw in Acts twelve and fifteen. He was the, basically the the you know the disciple of the great apostle Paul and Barnabas and Peter. And so they were basically helping him understand who the Lord is and what he came to do. He was probably somewhat of a kid, basically, when he uh, was uh, during the the time of Jesus and then was under their apostleship. And he began to write this gospel and he says it from the get-go The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so his whole objective is to show you that Jesus has complete authority in your life. And that's really the title of the message this morning is that he has total authority in our lives. And the implications are dozens in our life as we get through this message. To forgive us, to heal us, to set us free, to save us. But John the Baptist, what he came to do is to clear the way, to show us that back in Isaiah and Malachi that he was, and we talked about last week, he's preparing our hearts so that we would see Jesus and who he really is. And he would walk off the pages even in our hearts, even this morning, and that we would, you know, it's so easy to have familiarity in these Bible passages. I mean, how many times have you read the Gospels? And I'm hoping that, we could sort of turn that off in a way. Just, I mean, the familiarity as far as where we know it's in the Bible is fine, but uh, we could easily miss this incredible message. And even as I'm going through and studying this incredible gospel again, I want to take it slower. I want to know what was in the mind of Mark. Why did he write this to the Romans? Why was it so important that he would, you know, risk his life, so to speak, in, 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 in such a dangerous city, Rome? to write this important gospel so that people in that day would understand that Jesus is the awaited Messiah, and he did come, and he came to save us from our sins. And that word, uh, good news, was just a signal that that there was military victory, that there was a king that was coming into rule and reign. Remember, we established that last week, that that's what euangelion, which means good news, or glad tidings that he would eventually come and take the throne and it wouldn't be Caesar. And that's important to know that and even has implications today that there's only one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. But you know, a a man can't just walk up on the scene and declare that and just say, I am Lord. He's got to be authenticated. There's got to be a place where uh, or affirmation, there's got to be proof. No one could just waltz on the scene and say, I'm God. Uh, of course, you wouldn't believe that today. But even then, try to, you know, uh, rewind, go backwards. In that day, someone just claiming to be God was not common. And so Mark's goal is to show the Romans that Jesus is the Christ by right out of the gate. It says, it is written in Isaiah. And he shows us from this prophecy that was written 400 to 700 years, 400 uh, Malachi, 700 years, Isaiah, to show us that this man, this crazy man in the desert named John the Baptist, who eats locusts and honey and wears uh, uh, basically animal skin, camel skin, he's, he's in the desert yelling, crying out, please repent, because this is the guy that Isaiah was talking about. The day is here. I mean, that would give anybody chills at that time, right? I mean, oh my goodness, this is it. This is the guy. And if that's the guy, then then who is he preparing the people for? The Messiah. The kingdom is here. And that's a big deal. But the question today is, why does he need to be baptized? Why the Son of God, the perfect, sinless Son of God, need to be baptized? And so let's pick up with verse 9. I want you to have that question in your mind. I'm going to repeat that over and over again, but I want you to ask that over and over, and we will answer that for you this morning, and it has incredible implications. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan immediately, here's that word again, immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son and you, I am well pleased. So in those days, if you're taking notes, it it was the summer of AD 26. Now Jesus was born, I know it's kind of a little confusing. Uh, Jesus was born In 3 or 4 B.C. Now, try to figure that out. But we're not going to go into all the nuances of that. There's a reason behind it. But 3 or 4 B.C., so this would put him around 30 years old. And according to Luke 3.23, that's true. Jesus was 30. And you got to tie in all the Gospels together to fill in the gaps because each writer had a very specific purpose. We all established that a couple weeks ago. And his purpose was to write to the Romans be a very quick gospel get to the point that he is the awaited messiah he is the suffering servant he is the son of god now jesus's baptism i don't know if you guys know there's a little pop quiz out of all the gospels that are written for all four gospels what are the three events that all of them share about number one what the baptism of jesus number two The feeding of the 5,000. Did someone say that? No, no one said that. Okay. (laughs) And the anointing, if you remember that, when the woman breaks the alabaster jar in Jesus' feet. Interesting, isn't it? Out of four Gospels, and of course the passion story of him dying and being buried and resurrected. And the empty tomb, they all shared the same. But that is interesting. When you look at the Gospel, you're thinking... Man, certainly they would share the all share the same stories, you know the key ones, the ones. I mean, what about? I mean, you just stuff comes to your mind even now of like, oh, what about that story? What about why didn't everyone share the 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 parable of the lost son? You know, they all had a different reason why they did that, but they all chose to put his baptism in there, and there's a reason behind that. But in Nazareth, uh, this is a very small village in Galilee. Everyone knows that he was born there, but basically the Israelites conquered Galilee in uh, just, uh, Josiah's, no, 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 not Josiah, uh, Joshua's day, I'm sorry, I wrote that wrong, uh, in the northern kingdom. So these guys, the, w- the hearers of the day, especially the Romans, and, including the Jews, they had all despised Nazareth. It was uh, conquered by uh, the, the Assyrians at some point uh, later on in the northern kingdom. They looked at it kind of like the city of Samaria, if you remember that, and John 4. they despised that city because it was largely populated by Gentiles. And so, uh, even in John 7:41, says, "Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? It's to, it's to mock that city. There's no possible way that the Messiah would come from such a small, insignificant city. Where do they all think the Messiah was coming? Jerusalem. This is one big old fat rebuke to the Jews, right? Look, he's not coming from, and and look at this in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. They would all say, what? Oh, Hold on. So you're telling me, Mark, that this crazy old guy in the desert is preparing the way. I, I get it. He's the guy. He's the guy that came 700 years ago. He prophesied. John the Baptist is that prophet to prepare the way. For the Messiah. And now we're finally, Jesus is showing up on the scene. You tell me that he's from this small, insignificant city. That doesn't make any sense. There's no possible way that's the Messiah. And Mark's saying, He is. He is. And what they forgot was the prophecies back in Isaiah 9 1 through 2. It says this, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea and on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in dark in a dark land, the light will shine on them. They've totally forgot that and missed that, that the Messiah wouldn't come from Jerusalem. Also, Micah 5.2 says this, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah from, one, from you one the capital O, one, will go forth from, for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. They totally missed that, just as they had missed the prophet who was going to come and prepare the way. And I think it's interesting that Jesus, again and again, even Luke points that out, that he's going to be born in a humble manger in a very insignificant city. This is not going to be like the king in Rome. All the pomp and 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 the the big hoopla of coming into the city. This is a different king. He has full authority over our lives, but he's different. So Jesus came to be baptized by, jo- by John in the Jordan River, which virtually is a, near the goes from Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea. Thirteen hundred feet below sea level, the Dead Sea is. John's baptism, if you remember last week, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of spiritual renewal. Jesus had no business being there. No business. It it was. This would have shocked everybody. They would have never thought the Messiah would have come to John in the middle of the desert. To be baptized, for what? It did not make any sense. And there's that question again, why does he need to be baptized? John completely knew who Jesus was. He wasn't wasn't some sort of trick. Jesus didn't come in disguise or try to fool John in any way, right? I mean, John knew it was his cousin. There was this six months difference in age, John was six months older, if you remember the story in Luke. Zacharias and Elizabeth knew that John was to be the forerunner for the Messiah. He also knew that Mary was Jesus' earthly mother. Mary and Elizabeth, they lived near each other, and they sort of did life together, and they were pregnant virtually at the same time. Uh, And if you remember that one time when, uh, when John found out that Mary, uh, Jesus was inside, or the Son of God was inside of the womb of Mary. He leaped. Now the pregnant women here—any of your babies leaping and when they when they hear the word Jesus? But but John was even even in the womb. John was excited about Jesus. He knew this wasn't a surprise. In fact, we know that because uh, later on said, I'm coming to prepare the way. I'm sent by God to prepare the way. He knew his job description. He knew exactly why he was doing what he was doing in the desert. He knew the spiritual significance. And now this is the first meeting as far as what we know. The first meeting other than, you know, Mary and Elizabeth. Somehow maybe they had gone their separate ways, or I don't know. The scripture doesn't really say. You can't really uh, say that they met because there's no evidence of that. But it says here in John one thirty three, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, what do you mean he didn't recognize him? Now, he hadn't recognized him because he Really hasn't, they didn't do life together. John immediately left his hometown and went into the desert, in the Judean desert, and uh, spent time with the Lord and probably prayer and fasting to prepare for his, God was preparing his ministry to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry. So why would John, why didn't John want to baptize Jesus? And let's, let's turn here to Mark. 3.13 Mark 3.13 Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to Jesus to be baptized by him but John tried to prevent him saying I have need to be baptized by you and you, do, you come to me This doesn't make any sense. He was going to refuse to, he was basically going to disobey the Son of God because he didn't want to dare dunk Jesus in the water because he didn't need to be saved from his sin. But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time. In other words, just for this time, do it. I, I can't really go into all the theology, John, but just do it just this time. Trust me on this. And this is the reason why is for this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the part that Mark records he doesn't record the other dialogue it's still true and that's why we have to harmonize the Gospels and look at them as a whole but then also look at them separately so we can understand the authorial intent to why Mark specifically wrote it John didn't want to baptize Jesus because he was sinless Jesus had no business there. No business. John 1, 29 says, Behold the sinless Lamb of God. This is John the Baptist speaking. Behold the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world. You see, John, John's refusal to baptize Jesus, to even disobey, proves that to his readers and to us that Jesus is the Son of God. But that's not enough. we got to take it further. Hebrews four fifteen says, For we do not have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, he was tempted in every way. He understands our weakness. He understands exactly the temptation that you go through. And some of us, you know, we beat ourselves up when we have these thoughts in our mind and we forget that the enemy is trying to tempt us into sin. And we can look at Jesus and say, you had those same temptations, but yet you never gave in. And because you never gave in, it proves and shows that you are the Son of God. Jesus, or John, tried to be baptized by Jesus, and that obviously seemed more appropriate But Jesus wouldn't let him do it. He had to fulfill, or he had, the reason why he was baptized was for two reasons. And this has incredible implications, not only in our salvation, in our lives, but many lives you yet, not even heard the gospel yet, even in Miami or wherever we go, or our neighbors, our family or friends, for two reasons. One, to fulfill all righteousness. And number two, to authenticate his ministry. This will be more of like a, look at it this way, more like an introduction. Before we get into the action of Mark, it's going to seem a little slow, even though right out the gate it seems fast. And it'll kind of have that tempo, that kind of speed throughout the gospel of Mark. And I want you to feel that, but... We need to take this a little slower. That's why it's like, man, if we just do three verses, we're never going to finish this. Jesus will be back by then. Glorious. Wonderful. I have no problem with that. But it is important that we take this slow because it is an introduction. We have to establish a few things. Otherwise, the rest of Mark won't make any sense to us. Why, why Why could he just go around and waltz around the earth and just start... Casting out demons and healing the sick and going into Peter's mom's house and raising her from, from an from a illness that would have killed her and, and raising people from the dead. Confronting the, the religious establishment and confronting religious authorities. Who, who gave him that kind of authority? What gives him authority in your life to say you must meet as a church? And not just do online ministry. What gives him that kind of authority to do that? By the way, do you know why people do or people are totally satisfied with online ministry? You ever, that, that just baffles me, by the way. That people are just okay with just watching it online. I mean, this is, of course, if you're not sick and don't have a legitimate reason, of course is because their churches don't function like a New Testament church. And if it did, they'd actually miss it. The whole reason why the whole world's fine with it is because they don't actually have a good church to go to. They don't have a, a, a church that would actually challenge them and spur one another on in good works, as I prayed earlier in Matthew or Hebrews 10. You know, when people go up to you and say, Hey, man, how, how's, how's life? And and they actually really, by the way, they're not just saying that. It's not a pleasantry. They really want to know what's going on in your life. You already saw them probably on Thursday. And then, then they're asking you again. It's because you really care. And if churches don't do that, then, you know, it's not really a big deal. I suppose you can just watch it online. And if people, if pastors don't preach the word... And then call people to respond and have the church actually pastor people through that response. Yeah, I I think, you know, online option is, I mean, anybody would do that. I suppose as you're driving to the beach, watching. It doesn't really matter. So why did, we, we fought tooth and nail this last season, didn't we? People gave us all sorts of problems. But we're here. Right? And we're stronger than ever. But we got to go back to why did we do that? You're like, well, Jesus never said to me, really. What does Hebrews 10 then say? You're like, well, that was the Hebrews author. Well, if the Bible's inspired word of God, then that's God's word, isn't it? Jesus did say that. You're like, no, he didn't. He did. He did. This is so important. If we do not understand why Jesus had authority, then we're going to go throughout life questioning whether what we're doing is of him or not. Right? You might say, like, well, wh- who said that? Did Jesus really say that? You're going to be like the conversation in the garden. Did God really say Who gave God the authority to say, Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Who gave him that authority? Adam? The Supreme Court? (laughs) I think you're understanding what I'm saying, right? Who gave him that authority? The snake? God did. Before the heavens and earth were even established, he was there. And long after you're gone, he's there. And for that reason, when he makes us in his image, we live forever. We live forever. Jesus was baptized, number one, he was baptized to fulfill all Righteousness, and there's two subpoints to this, and then the next one will have two subpoints, and then we're we'll done. We're done. But just, I, I just a way of organization so you can follow me. Number one, Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, capital A L L all righteousness. And what that means is there's two significant reasons for this. In Matthew 3:15, he answered and "Permitted at this time." John, look, trust me, you don't understand this. There's some things that your mind, you're limited. You're doing a great ministry, and that just is is a great illustration for all of us. We're doing a great job in ministry, and there's certain things that we'll never understand. Jesus understood. Permit it at this time. Trust me. You don't understand. You're doing a great job, by the way, John. Keep eating those locusts. You look good. Just, you're doing a great job, but trust me on this. Just allow it. Allow it to happen. What was the righteousness that Jesus had to fulfill by obeying John? Two things. Did Jesus obey every single Old Testament law? Pop quiz. Yes. Why is that significant to our salvation and His authority? Why is that significant? Why did he have to be baptized? He, didn't, he certainly did not get baptized because he needed salvation. We all know that. That's obvious. But he did it because God sent him. Look, John one thirty three. I did not recognize him, but he, capital H, that is speaking of God, he who sent me, God gave me this ministry to baptize the people in the desert so that they would be prepared to meet God one day. And because of that, uh, this is this era right now, that means, Jesus, you're a Jew, you need to come and be baptized as well to fulfill this righteousness for this time, this season right now, and he needed to do that. Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of God in everything, in everything, John five thirty, I could do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Everything that God required him to do was fulfilled. And not, the sub-point here is active righteousness. Now, it's just a little theological term that's very important for all of us, is that Christ needed to perfectly obey the law so that... God can one day treat us as if we perfectly obeyed the law. If he missed even one thing, our salvation is inadequate. That's how important this is. That is how important this is. God treats Jesus as if he lived our sinful life. And God treats us as if we lived his righteous life. That, my friends, is the gospel right there. Tell that to yourself every day. We need that every day of our life. God, you treat me as if I lived perfectly how he lived. Look, if you're 10 years old in the room, if you're 12... You need to tell yourself that. When you disobey your mom and you feel terrible about that, one thing that you need to do is tell yourself, yes, I sinned, but God, you are treating me as if I lived Jesus' perfect life. And what you're doing is you're treating Jesus, or you treated Jesus as if he disobeyed his mother. Right? And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's incredible. Number two, the, or the second part, is passive righteousness. He needed to identify with sinful man. You might have heard that before when he needed to go into the water of baptism. He was identifying himself with sinful man. Why is that? Because he needed to be the great substitute. He substitute when he went into the waters of baptism, he was saying this: "I'm going to go." This is symbolic. He was not being saved, as opposed to the heretics, what they say on TBN or wherever you you know. He was going into the water, into the water of baptism, and it was symbolic of his future death and burial, and then resurrection. Immediately, he got out of the grave. Immediately he resurrected, Mark is saying, but not yet, and he was foretelling us in a way. He was, he was saying, look, it's, it's almost as if the people at that time were saying, oh, okay, watch this. Mark's saying, one day he's going to go to the cross like he went into the waters of baptism, and believers look back and say, he did that, and so I'm going to identify with Christ. He identified with us, and now we're identifying with Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? That's Romans 6. He died as a substitutionary death. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, very familiar verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what he did. He was prophesying with his body, with his actions, that one day he would die for us. One day Paul would write this and and get it exactly right to the Corinthians. That this is needed to happen. The righteousness of God demanded a penalty. It demanded that everyone die when they break it. Everybody. And this is what the beauty of Colossians 2.14 says, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of the decrees against us, and we had many, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. Isaiah 53, 12, very familiar again. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That was us. That was Jesus taking our sin and wiping it away. He needed to identify with us. That's why. He's like, look, John, you may not understand this. And you're right. I, I probably need to baptize you. And in one sense, I will. I'm going to cover your sin. John, you're not perfect. And everybody after you, those people who you're baptizing, they need to be saved. The one who had no sin was now publicly identifying himself with those who had no righteousness. Let me say that again, and let that sink. I don't want you to miss this. You miss this, you'll miss the whole gospel of Mark. You'll be like, oh, just another healing. Yeah, I heard that before. Another, another deeming being casted out. Another parable from Jesus. Another rebuke for the Pharisees. But listen, the one who had no sin now publicly identifying himself with those who had no righteousness. That doesn't get better than that, does it? Don't you just love the gospel? Are you like Spurgeon? Preaching the gospel to yourself every day? I tell you, make you a better husband better spouse, better father, teacher, whatever you do in life. It'll help you be more gracious to people around you, realizing that you are a sinner. Jesus, the perfect sinless one identified with us who had sinned. This baptism foretold the crucifixion Luke twelve fifty says, "I have a baptism to undergo." Jesus is he's telling his disciples, and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. He lived with this weight at thirty years old. I mean, he lived most likely, you know, as far as what he can understand, even maybe as early as twelve. I don't, we don't know, but he knew as soon as his, as soon as John the Baptist came for six months, it was time, and he showed up on the scene. He lived with this incredible burden he knew it wasn't just some sort of water baptism. This foretold the horrific beating that he would take from the Romans. The crown of thorns. The stripping naked. The beating with rods. The beating with a Roman whip that had bones and metal in it to bruise and to rip flesh apart and then die on a horrific cross, shameful He knew all that. And that's why he came. He came for that. He came to identify with you. That's why we meet. That's why we spur one another on good deeds. That's why we do encouragement. That's why we go to Miami. None of this makes sense without this baptism. And the understanding of it. Mark 10, 38 says this Jesus said, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism in which I'm baptized? That's what he was talking about. Later on in his mysteries, like that baptism is not just some sort of H2O. We're not talking about chemistry here, folks. We're talking about identifying with sinful man and taking the penalty that all of us deserved. To fulfill all righteousness included obedience, perfect obedience of Jesus, and identifying with sinful man to be the substitute. That's the first point. Ready for the second? All right. Jesus was baptized, baptized to authenticate his ministry. It gave him authority, complete authority to do everything else from chapter two or the rest of one, all the way to 16 and beyond. Now you even understand why that it's even more fitting that Mark's gospel ended with terror. It just ended. Why? Because his ministry continues even today. It continues today. Isn't that good? His authority continues in our life today. That's what's so amazing about this. Verse 10. Immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Immediately, euthus. That is the word in Greek, immediately, 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 immediately. All that really means is without delay, He didn't tarry. He quickly got out of the water. Catch this, is what Mark's saying. Catch this. This is the authenticating of Jesus' ministry. This is what gives him authority to say, I am Lord and not Caesar. This is what gives every Christian confidence that in every trial he is Lord and sovereign. Amen? Every passage in Scripture, according to 2 Timothy 3, has profit in our life. Amen? Never look at any scripture and be like, well, kind of know that, move on. You're missing the instruction. You're missing the correction. Luke 3.21 says that Jesus, a little note here, you got to put all these together, like I said. Jesus was saying, or Jesus was praying as he was coming out of the water. Mark doesn't record that. But Jesus was praying as he got out. And one thing to note here was that the Trinity was present. As opposed to some of the Christian so-called cults that do not believe in the Trinity, they are wrong. The Trinity is present. You see Jesus, the Son, right here, my beloved Son, the Father, God, the Creator of the heavens and earth. And the Holy Spirit is there. How do you miss that? It's because they're blind. The God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded them from the glory of Christ. They're blinded. Two things to note here is that divine commissioning is both visual and audible. Jesus' authority came in a very visual way. You know the heavens literally tore open. It was both audible and visual for those who need that kind of help, right? Some of us need that. We're like, all right, I understand the words, but give me some, give me something, give me an experience. Well, you want your experience, here it is. This is something not like we don't need a mystical experience to know that God, Jesus, is God. We need the word of God. There is enough evidence right here to bank our entire lives on the Lord. It was visual affirmation, and the Spirit authenticated his ministry. The sky, literally, it says, it's schizo in Greek. It's just a, it literally tore open. It's like, woo, everybody knows. This thing is, is happening. And I'll show you uh, in, in the verses to come how everyone would know, the Jews would know, unless they're blinded, the Jews would know something is happening here something is being inaugurated here something is being he is being authenticated because not only in the old testament but also there's evidence even in the intertestamental period books the apocrypha which again is not the inspired word of god but we can learn from it and it's interesting all that i mean the jews knew and i have evidence here i'll read in a moment that everybody with some sense and knowledge of the Old Testament would say something is happening here. Something's happening here. This is a big deal. The only other time that that word was used, ripped open, was in, Ma- was in Mark, the very end of Mark, Mark 15, 38, when the other confession happened, By the Roman centurion said this is the son of God and what happened the veil in the temple tore in two isn't that amazing don't you love the word so much in the word of God Isaiah 65 17 says this for behold I create new heavens and new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind he was doing something new this is the newness this isn't some charismatic joker coming up. God's doing something new in the building. Really? This is what he's doing. He's bringing the son of God to earth. How does that compare to your small vision? God's always doing something new. I suppose he is. I'll tell you what, this is new. This is new. And and Judaism was dry. Like a dry piece of toast. It didn't give any life. There's no substance. They were looking forward to this day. And many missed it. Isaiah 64, one says this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You hear that? Oh, God, would you rend the heavens and come down? Would you make all things new that the mountains might quake at your presence? And it's here. It's here. The heavens were rended. The skies were open. And the Spirit came down like a dove. Now look, I don't think it was an actual dove, by the way. I don't think this like, you know, just like, oh, this nice little scene, you know, it's kind of like blurry on the edges, you know what I'm talking about, like when it's a dreamy scene. (laughs) It's like a rainbow in the back, you know. It's like, oh, you know, like Jesus' glowing, perfect manicured hair. No, he's dripping wet. He looks up at the sky. The sky is open. It's, a, it's visual, but it wasn't a dove. So what's going on here? I mean, some say it was probably like Genesis. You know, after the flood, the, 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 the dove was sent out. I mean, I suppose, you know, maybe you could look at it that way. I know the early church fathers would allegorize everything. There's no evidence to that. There's no evidence that it was an actual... It says, like a dove, and that's a key word. Why? Because it's a simile. There's similes and metaphors in Scripture. And that's important, isn't it? Then say a literal dove came on and rested on Jesus' shoulder. What is it actually saying? What's the gist of it? They understood that when the Son of God would come, or the Messiah would come, the Holy Spirit would accompany Him in His ministry. It was very clear. That's what it means. Isaiah eleven two: the the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's easy. That's exactly what happened. He would, he would permanently, the Holy Spirit would permanently abide Jesus in his ministry like he did the Old Testament saints, or I should say the prophets. And they would anticipate this day, and they would know it's the Messiah when the Spirit descended on him, and when the heavens were open. Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant, Whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, 1, very familiar. And he quotes this passage in Luke 4 later on. But the spirit of the Lord of God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. There is no doubt... That this is the Messiah. This is quite an event, isn't it? Jesus is both God and man. You might be asking, why did the Holy Spirit have to accompany Jesus if he's God? That's a really good question. Well, here, Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says this who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, we got to be very careful here when we read this, right? But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Jesus was equal with God But because he came on earth, he was both God and man, he chose to be subservient to God the Father and to abide in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he's both God and man, but he needed to be empowered for his ministry with the Holy Spirit. Now don't think any more into that, please. You're going to ruin it when you do that. And be a heretic, <laughs> but this—we <laughs> already have a few, don't we? All right. The Spirit was present at every major event in Christ's life, right? How many? What, what, you got his birth, Luke 1.35, Mark one ten, at his baptism, Mark one twelve, at his temptation, which we'll see next week, Luke four fourteen, at his ministry. Mark twelve twenty eight and Acts ten thirty eight. He performed miracles and healing in the power of the Spirit, and then Hebrews nine suggests that uh, or demonstrates that he needed the Spirit even in his death, and then Romans one four in his resurrection. All the major points in his life, the Holy Spirit was there. He needed the Holy Spirit to be visible to all to see, to show that he has complete authority to do what he's about to do. Amen? And then there was an audible affirmation. Not only was he accompanied by the Spirit and authenticated by the Spirit, he was authenticated by the Father. The voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. John literally heard it. He saw it. He saw this whole scene. He's like, look, this is incredible. Oh, I wish everybody could see this. This is incredible. This is the one. He's finally here. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. This is the one. Don't look at me. This is it. My ministry is over. You remember that scene when When he said, Behold the Lamb of God, and then his disciples ditched John, and they went to Jesus. Everyone's like, "Oh, poor John. John's thrilled. Thrilled. Don't humanize that. He obeyed the Lord and finished the race. There was an audible affirmation. Matthew 17, 5, at the Transfiguration, that was a big deal, too. When he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, I'm not going to get all all into that, but Peter at that point was about to build two tabernacles, or three. One for you, Lord, one for Elijah, and one for Moses, who represented the law and the prophets. And Jesus says, I fulfill both. There's only one temple. There's no need for your shenanigans. (laughs) That's what he was saying voice came out of the cloud. This is God again. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Isn't that a good word for our day? You don't need to listen to Fox News. Listen to him. Listen to him. Turn down the radio. Turn up his voice in your life. John 12, 28. Father, glorify your name. This is the third time. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The father loves to affirm the son. And this is a very important scene. He needed to affirm the son before he got into his ministry. Because without that affirmation, Jesus did not need that affirmation for him personally because he was psychologically inept to Deal with Satan and his tactics. It was for us. It's for us. Isn't it? You remember in John 12 that voice? We need it. We need to know. The Father's affirmation, because we need to know that he is the Son, the awaited son, because we're not giving our life in vain to someone that is some sort of liar, or as they said, lunatic. Right? But he truly is the Son of God. Not only do the old testaments, old testament prophets show us this amazing prophetic word to us that he's going to come and there's going to be this voice from heaven and there's going to be this affirmation there's going to be this visual and this off uh, uh, this voice that's going to affirm but also in the testament of levi now again i will say these are not inspired scriptures They're not inspired by God, but they can help us understand, listen, they can help us understand what's in the mind of the Jew during the intertestamental period. When they thought God was silent, and in one sense he was for 400 years or so, or the second temple period, as some scholars call it. But in 250 BC, the testament of Levi says this in chapter 18, the heavens will be opened. And from the temple of glory, sanctification will come upon upon him with a fatherly voice as from Abraham to Isaac. It's very interesting, isn't it? Didn't Abraham tell Isaac, you are my only son? And the glory of the Most High shall burst forth upon him. And the spirit of understanding and sanctification shall rest upon him in the water. For he shall give the majesty of the Lord to those who are his sons in truth forever. The heavens opened above him, spirit descended on him, heavenly voice spoke to him. It's pretty amazing. They were anticipating, they were waiting for something like this to happen. And they looked at the Old Testament scriptures and they they were waiting. Oh, please. It would almost be like, it's not inspired scripture again, but... They took the scriptures, it'd almost be like one of us in the intertestamental period saying, oh, I'm waiting for this to happen. And 250 years later, he came. Testimony of Judah in chapter 24, the heavens opened, and the, and the Spirit was poured out as a blessing of the Holy Father. That's pretty amazing. And by the way, God only called the prophets man of God, friend of God, servant of God, but never the Son of God. That would have been, again, just ringing in their ears. Son of God, whom I am well pleased. That is a huge deal. The voice of heaven referenced a few things in the Old Testament that's very clear to us today that will strengthen our faith. Psalm 2-7 says this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. That was, a, he literally fulfilled that in their day. Isaiah 42, one, behold my servant whom I behold, my chosen one, in whom my soul get, delights, excuse me, I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then Genesis 22, two, I just referenced that. He said, take now your son, your only son, this is God speaking to Abraham before he was about to sacrifice his son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I tell you. And he stopped him before he stuck the knife in his heart and provided a sacrifice as a substitute for him. What an incredible picture of what Jesus has done in our life with his only son. The father declaring Jesus as his son shows that they are one. One. Let me rattle a few scriptures off. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Again, the cults do not like that one. Drives them absolutely insane, which is sort of fun in a way. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand in the majesty on high. He had full authority and still has it. 2 Corinthians 4:4, see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ is the image of God. Colossians 2:9, for in him all the fullness of deity, deity dwells in bodily form. What other evidence do you need? They're one. They're one. Hebrews one six to eight, and when he begin when he, again he brings the four, firstborn into the world, he says, "Let all the angels of God worship him." John five eighteen. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making him equal with God. It's very clear what was happening here when. He said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. Not talking about some other prophet. He's not saying, look, here's another guy who's going to come and declare my word. No, he's different. He is the prophet, capital P. Do not miss that. Jesus is beloved also by the father. And this is important for a number of reasons as well. John 5, 20, for the father loves the son and shows himself all things that he himself is doing. Agapetos, what that means is it is a special word of love to a very special relationship. It was saying, look, this is my only son whom I love. This is, you only share this word with someone that is extremely special, and in this case, God to the son, you want to know how amazing this is? In Romans 1.17, this word is not used throughout the New Testament, only in certain places. But in Romans 1.17, it was used later to refer to God's love for believers. The same love that God has for us, or for the, for the Lord, for the sinless Son of God, the Messiah, he has for us. That's amazing. That's incredible. John 17, 24 and 26 says the same thing. Ephesians 1, 6, it's the same thing. God's love for Jesus and subsequently his love for us. We shouldn't doubt that. That's why I love Romans 10, which says that faith comes by hearing the word concerning Christ. We can't. We can't know how much we're loved until we dive into the person of Jesus, to be dive into the Gospels and hear the word being preached to us. So many people walk around, I'm not loved, I'm not loved, I'm not loved. Stop listening to the enemy's voice. You are loved. You can't possibly be more loved than how much God loves the Son. It's impossible. If you don't believe that truth, there's no, there, I, I could do gymnastics up here and, and do everything. I give you money and I mean, what, I could do all sorts of things. I could paint your house. I could. I mean, you're just. You're, oh, I'm not loved. I'm not loved. I'm not loved. I get that. I, I I tell myself that at times. I mean, I understand that. I I get that. I have those days. But look, this strong word that. Whom I love. You might be thinking, well, that's super easy to love Jesus. He's sinless. But that same exact love towards the Son is towards everybody in this room who are His. Amazing. Not only that, but the Father is well pleased with the Son. Only Jesus could meet those perfect requirements in Isaiah 53 and Exodus 12 and Leviticus 1 and Deuteronomy 17. He's the perfect Lamb of God. Hebrews 10 says this, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with what? The precious blood as as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless blood of Christ. He needed to be this. The father is well pleased with him because he is sinless. He is unblemished. And when he identifies with you as a sinful, blemished lamb, he is able to take away all of your sin and to wipe your slate completely clean, past, present, and future. Amazing. That's a drop the mic quote there. I can't think of anything better to say than that. That's incredible. We're incredibly loved, aren't we, church? We're really loved. Your sister can mess with you, right, kids? You might feel unloved by your parents at times. You might feel unloved by your spouse. Unloved by your boss every day. but you can walk every day with your head held high. Why? Because he's pleased with you because he's pleased with the son. One last thing here. Jesus' ministry was fully authenticated and that's incredibly important for a number of reasons like we said earlier. Mark rattles off if you could I could show you so many scripture verses but I'll I'll save some time here we have a long day we have a Miami meeting and ADS with about 80 students tonight but Jesus later on you'll see this and this is don't miss this and and then we're going to close Jesus was fully able to forgive sin. Do you remember when the Pharisees said, what gives you this authority to go do this? Jesus had one thing in mind when they asked that. And then it goes on in chapter two to accept sinners. And he has authority to call tax collectors to discipleship. He, calls, he has authority to call you in discipleship. He has authority to... Tell you to pick up your cross and follow him. Authority to heal the sick, cast out demons. He also has authority to give the true intent of the Sabbath. He has authority to challenge religious, the religious establishments, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which no one dare would do. He had full authority to over the Sanhedrin. He had full authority over the Roman government why why it's interesting here i'm going to read you one last passage here in mark 11 turn there if you can mark 11:28 it's interesting towards the last portion of his ministry you remember the first eight chapters he's in galilee he's doing his ministry establishing his authority in in a more practical sense and seeing him have authority over nature Demons, sickness, disease. And then the latter half, he goes to Jerusalem to then identify with you and me. Are you beginning to see Mark's outline, in a sense? So, as he's come into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, he's here, he's going to share a few more parables, go before the authorities, all the trials, and then die and then eventually resurrect from the dead. But in verse 28, or I should say 27, we can start with, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? You think Jesus was confused? You think he had to rattle off all these different things in order to make them feel better? And Jesus said to him, I will ask you one question. And you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? Then they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John, to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What was he saying? Are you convinced now that the baptism of Jesus is the most, one of the most important events in all of world history? He bases his entire authority, everything that he did, I'm on this one event. And he tells these religious jokers, look, I will tell you where I get my authority from. I get my authority from John heralding and sharing a 700-year-old prophecy about him coming to prepare the way for me. I'll tell you that John the Baptist baptized me because I needed to identify myself With you whom I'm going to die for. And that baptism, the Holy Spirit confirmed that he is the Son of God and accompanying him throughout his whole ministry, and the Father affirmed him with the voice from heaven, saying, You are my son, whom I'm well pleased. If you can't believe that John was God's prophet, Then you won't believe the significance of Christ's baptism where the Spirit anointed him and the Father affirmed him. There is nothing else Jesus can do to authenticate his authority. They just simply won't recognize him as God. This has incredible implications on the entire world. The entire world. And certainly the church. Does, does Jesus have authority over our lives? Absolutely. He does. He absolutely does. And now, as we'll see for the rest of Mark, he has authority not only to act on behalf of God, but as God Himself. As God Himself. To minister as God's son, the Messiah. And you know what, in the next chapter? He's going to be tested. And tested by the devil. I'll do uh, eight verses next week, but it'll be exciting. He needs to be tested in that. And of course, we know how it ends. But it's also equally very important to establish his ministry in our life. Why don't we pray? Before we do that, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's important that the Lord has authority in every detail of your life, every little detail in your life. He's not only your Savior, which he's established that, but he's also your Lord. What he says goes, doesn't it? Guys, we've said this over and over. This is Jesus' church. He has authority over this church. He has authority over my life as a leader, over the lives of the elders. He has authority over my household as a father. I don't just get to tell my kids whatever to do. I want to do it according to what? His word. He has authority over my workplace, which in my case is the church, but he has authority over your workplace. That you're there to glorify him and do a good job because he's your boss, as Paul said in Colossians and Ephesians. As a mother, you don't just tell your kid, because I said so. Although you like doing that, right? We all do. But you say, because he said so. You teach your kids what? The fear of the Lord. He has complete authority over our lives. And he's established that. In 53 Greek words, which is incredibly disproportionate to the entire book of Mark, let alone the entire scripture. Father, thank you for this incredible, amazing message from Mark. You really are the son of God. For those friends who are family members and Maybe even the people that we've talked to overseas that are just like, no, he just can't be God. And they try to discredit the Bible in so many different ways. They almost have to work harder to do that than just believe the simplicity of your message. That all the arrows are pointing to Jesus. Really, that's the purpose of this. Is that the Son of God would literally walk off the pages of Scripture and into our hearts and make a difference in our world